Episode 1. Chad Hauer has lived an interesting life by most people's standards. He spent his childhood wandering around unsupervised in a college town, broke into the software development industry in the 90s with no college degree, and went on to become an international spokesperson and software developer for Microsoft in the 90s and 2000s, where he oversaw a business in over 80 countries. He also wrote early-age internet software that is still in use to this day, all while having lived around the globe in over a dozen countries. One day, while preparing to speak at a software conference in Sofia, Bulgaria, his world changed forever. He was arrested for international kidnapping. Who had he allegedly kidnapped? His own son. Chad has been married twice and has three children. A custody battle with his first wife over his oldest child went dramatically wrong, and after gaining custody of his son and moving him outside the United States, he was eventually arrested for internationally kidnapping his son after losing contact with his ex-wife. Clearly, a lot had happened behind the scenes that he was not aware of. How does someone go from being an ordinary family man to a fugitive accused of internationally kidnapping his own son? Well, it all starts with a marriage. On October 15, 1994, Chad Hauer married Nancy Oberlander near Lexington, Kentucky. The bride and groom were both 20 years old. According to Chad, 12 years later, Nancy convinced a judge in Pennsylvania to accept false information to grant her custody of their son and subsequently worked with the FBI to have Chad charged with international kidnapping. It sounds crazy, I know, but just follow along. might assume that two 20-year-olds who eloped to get married in a mall were madly in love. This really wasn't the case. These young people got married on a whim and saw each other more as friends. Well, um, you know, as I said before, it was, it was a marriage that should have never happened. You know, I, I was autistic and I didn't know that until last year. Chad is very public about the fact that he is autistic and did not discover this until recently, when he was in his mid-40s. This, he says helps to contextualize his behavior from earlier in his life. Chad met Nancy after an upbringing that was different from most. Although school was laughably easy for him, and he was enrolled in college classes as an early teen, he never finished college and lived in many places with different groups of friends. At 18 years old, Chad Hauer, in his hometown of Erie, Pennsylvania, met the woman who later fought to have him declared an international kidnapper. I remember I went back and I was working at Taco Bell. I remember I went to work at Taco Bell because basically fast food, they'll hire anybody, right? If you need a job, you go to fast food yeah. or groceries and restaurants. So I was doing restaurant work and then I was at Taco Bell. I remember because when I met Vecna, I was at Taco Bell. Yes, you heard that correctly. Chad refers to his ex-wife as Vecna. He explains. You watch Stranger Things? No. Okay, well, if you watch Stranger Things, Vecna is the basic, is the evil, the evil creature in Stranger Things. So I call her Vecna now. So, um, this is not Nancy. Yeah, it's Nancy. And this is Nancy. Okay, okay, got it. I was confused, but yes, Vecna is Nancy. I was in a summer program in high school, and a girl I knew from there had moved to Erie, and I forget how we hooked up. We weren't dating together, we were just friends. And 
they were studying at this it was like a technical school so we st i started hanging out with their bubble kind of and vecna was like a friend of a friend of a friend of their bubble who showed up every once in a while and i just wasn't in a good spot in my life and i wasn't popular and we just started hanging out and we ended up getting married early and that's kind of how it ended up and then I was working at Taco Bell, she was working at Dunkin' Donuts, and then we moved in with her parents and got married, and that's kind of how it happened. During the time they were living in Nancy's parents' home, Chad moved from working at Taco Bell into his life as a professional software engineer. During this time, he worked contract roles as a database programmer in Longview, Texas, and Detroit, Michigan. He had been such a success at these jobs that Eastman Chemical, the company that had hired him as a contractor in Texas, offered him a job to develop software for internal use at their headquarters in Kingsport, Tennessee. He and Nancy moved there in 1996. We bought a house in Tennessee uh, out up in the mountains, about half an hour away from Kingsport, Tennessee, where Eastman Chemical Headquarters is. Um, and it was a nice house, uh, had two barns. Nancy had horses, so I bought a house with two barns, fixed up the barns, we bought a horse trailer. I moved her horses down to Tennessee for her the whole bit. Chad describes their relationship in this period as stable, though not romantic. The two were able to enjoy their time together, go hiking, and enjoy their Tennessee property. Chad had come a long way from working at Taco Bell to becoming a coveted piece of talent for a large corporation. To sum up, We married in 1994 in Kentucky. Remember the, the exact date. And then we moved to Tennessee in early 96 because I had to move down there first and make sure the job was cool and everything. My son was born in Tennessee, and he grew up in Tennessee until we separated and divorced. Heiress Charles Oberlander Hauer was born June 5, 1996, in Churchill, Tennessee. The birth of their son marked a milestone in their relationship. For Nancy, it may have been the objective of the relationship, and Chad was excited to become a father. One of the first strange things that Chad told me about Nancy was regarding the name of their son. I knew his name was Eris, spelled A-A-R-Y-S. I had no idea what the thought behind that name was. But the first time I brought it up to Chad, this is what he had to say. After Eris is born in Tennessee, Alex. But Alex. Well, Eris is his name, but he goes by Alex. He hates Eris. And so what, what's the reason, or what's the meaning of that name? Okay, well, uh, my ex-wife, it came to her in a dream. I was, I was cool with it. Even the spelling came up. The problem is that he, kids could never pronounce it in school, and they made fun of him, so he never liked it to begin with. Then when he came overseas to live in Russia, um, Eris is, you know Cupid, right? Yeah. Well, in, in Europe, Cupid is a little bit different. Cupid is the god of love, and he's not only just the god of love, he's a god of sex. And the name is Eros from Greek. Eros and Eris are very clear, and in Russian, it is Eris. In Russia, he was the god of the baby god of sex, which didn't do very well. And we yeah. also lived in Cyprus, and in Cyprus, they speak Greek. So obviously, it was a problem there. So basically, pretty soon after he came to live with me, He's like, uh, Dad, I never liked the name, and I don't want to be the, you know, I don't want to be the 10-year-old god of sex, so can I go by a different name? I'm like, yeah, what do you want to go by? He's like, well, Alex is cool. So he went by Alex, and to this day, he uh, stuck by it. Everything about living in Russia and Cyprus will eventually make sense, and that's jumping way ahead in the story. But it's important to know that Chad Hauer and Nancy Oberlander's son, the center of this story, was born Eris Hauer, and now has the name Alex Hauer. Chad and I refer to him as Alex, but in court documents, he is referred to as Eris. 
Back to Chad, reflecting on his marriage and the first red flags he saw. You know, it, relationships for autistic people, especially when you don't know you're autistic, is, is challenging. But that, that marriage just should have never happened. Um, we got along, though, mostly. I mean, but it, it was kind of like roommates almost. After a while, I just kind of thought, okay, that's what it was, but we didn't hate each other. I mean, if you see my younger autistic self as well, you know, it, it definitely was not a, a, a ladies' man. <laughs> So I figured, well, I got what I got, and that's what it is. And of course, you know, she wanted to have kids, so okay, had a kid, and I was good at that. And but she became very possessive. Oh my gosh! I mean, just she was so possessive with him. I can remember one time in Tennessee, the big grocery store chain in Tennessee, in Eastern Tennessee, at least, is called Food City. And every year they had this big fair at the convention center with all the food vendors, and it was free food. You go there was ice cream and snacks and pizza and you paid like a few dollars to get in it was just like free food and it was awesome and my son loved this and she didn't want to go one year and he was like oh he must have been like three or four but he loved it he loved it mm -hmm. and so I took him one time and she didn't want to go and it was like right there and when we came back she was so she's like don't you ever take my son without me i told you not to go you are not to take our son my son with without me ever i'm only and it's like wow you know it's like we just went to the food fair it's it's just up the road it's it's you know this is not a big deal i didn't take him for the night and we were still married at that point and it was kind of at that point i started realizing you know sh this is this is weird she's super super possessive this possessiveness was an early sign of what was to come and caught chad somewhat off guard there were, however, signs of mental health issues within Nancy's family that foreshadowed the frustrating divorce that was to come. You mentioned before there was a lot of mental health issues in the family and with her throughout her entire life, but for your relationship, it really started to come out when there was a child in the picture? I yeah. wouldn't say the relationship was fantastic before right. then, but we were friends, we hiked together. I mean, it, I think she married me just because we got along and she wanted kids. Mm -hmm. There was no possessiveness before Alex was born? No. Interesting. No, certainly with me. <laughs> yeah, right. You were you were all around. Because it was so platonic. One time she's like, you know, if you want to like go have an affair, I'm cool with that. <laughs> I was like, this was kind of like short circuiting my brain at the time. And I don't think I ever processed that at the time, but I was just kind of like, um, okay. But uh, I, I never did. So, um, Chad continues later on the topic of her mental health. I'm not going to diss on her. She has some mental issues. She did then. Her whole family uh, has some issues. One sister is schizophrenic and is in a in a uh, an assisted living facility. One brother is in prison for murder. So, I mean, I got along with her family, but there's some mental illness in the family, to say the least. And um, she's certainly no exemption. Other than these occasional incidents of possessiveness, from what I can tell, this was a marriage that was stable, although the romantic element of their relationship was not present. Chad was making a large salary with his computer programming skills, and Nancy was raising their child and taking care of her animals. We bought a house in Tennessee, uh, out up in the mountains, about half an hour away from Kingsport, Tennessee. And then when we got to Tennessee, I bought her horses too, which were expensive. Um, I worked at Tennessee Eastman for, oh, I don't remember, a little more than a year. I don't think it was quite two years. And then uh, other companies started trying to poach me. And I resisted it for a while, but eventually, you know, the urge kind of got there because the work at Eastman, it was, it was a good company, they're good people, but it was, it was corporate work. It wasn't really challenging to be. In what he saw as a less than ideal marriage, 
Chad chose to pursue his professional status by working all across the country and being home in Tennessee only about half the time. He worked in Connecticut, South Carolina, Arizona, and other places on a one-week-on, one-week-off basis, where one week he would be at his company site and the next he would be working from his home in Tennessee with Alex and Nancy. Chad's career was going very well and he decided that he could only bear his platonic marriage for so long and decided that he wanted to move on from his relationship with Nancy. Chad made this decision carefully and hoped to exit the relationship with dignity and generosity towards his ex-wife. Little did either of them know that this would be the first domino to fall in a series of events that would start a massive legal conflict that would make newspaper headlines all around the world and leave a strain on the lives of everyone involved. I thought, okay, well, this isn't working out. We should have gotten divorced years ago. We should have got married, but we've got a kid. So listen, I'm going to leave the kid in Tennessee. I'm going to give her the house so his kid's got a place to live. I'll leave her the car. Paid her alimony for a lot of years. I had almost, I mean, I was struggling. And, um, and then, you know, it kind of blew up from there. Blew up from there is an understatement. To this point in the story, both Chad and Nancy are working in their son's best interest. Chad was willing to recognize the failure of the marriage and leave his ex-wife and son with a reasonably good life while seeing his son during the summers and living overseas in more alignment with his goals. Chad hoped that this would be a viable plan, and it sounds reasonable to the outside observer. If this plan had panned out, this would be the end of a very simple story. Instead, it was merely the beginning of a grueling custody battle that would rear its head in front of multiple state, federal, and international courts and continue to stain the lives of Chad, Nancy, and Alex. Obstruction, rather than cooperation, was the dominant theme in the post-separation parenting of Alex Hauer, according to Chad. Well, um, I, I had figured, well, you know, we had gotten along, but I figured, okay, I'm sorry, I thought we could work out custody and everything uh -huh. else, especially since I gave her the house and everything. And so initially I thought, okay, well, let's see how this works out. And I'll, I'll come back to the country in the summers or maybe in the winters. And let's just kind of see how things work out. Um, but I had an opportunity to live overseas. And so, uh, but right away she was like, nope. <laughs> and it just got ugly really fast. Um, I remember in Tennessee, you have to go to mediation before you go to the court. And I remember going to the mediator and the mediator was a, was a woman, by the way very experienced. She was in fact going to retire like the next month. And we were one of her last cases to handle. And he, at one point they had Nancy go outside and the mediator actually came to me and my lawyer. And he says, listen, in my 40 year career, I have never ever met anyone so intransigent as your, uh, soon to be yeah. ex-wife. She says, we are not even going to continue mediation for the first time in my career. I'm going to tell the judge, just process this without mediation because she's intransigent. There is no budging her whatsoever. Yeah. And it just, it escalated. We, we got a custody and visitation agreement that basically if, if I gave her like two weeks notice that when I was coming in the country that I would have, I would have be able to have gain visitation so long as it didn't interfere with his schooling and I gave her notice and so forth, but then I would fly into the country and they wouldn't be home. And it just, you know, it kept escalating, kept escalating. And so we were in and out of the courts for that whole, like, first several years. Where were they just, if they weren't in the house? Every time we'd come, I'd fly, you know, I'd fly from Russia to the United States to visit him. I'd come in. We planned to, like, stay for a month. And we would, you know, live in Tennessee. Sorry, nearby. 
so that I could visit him like, you know, after school and on weekends. And she just was never there. It was, it made it impossible. Where, where in the world were they? Tennessee. They, but they were not in the house. Oh, well, they wouldn't be in the house when I would come to pick them up. They would oh. still live there. Oh, it's just uh-huh. when it was my time to come pick him up, they wouldn't be home. So she was obstructing. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. From the very beginning, from the very get-go, we would make phone calls and they wouldn't be there. She she was obstructing from, from the very beginning. Absolutely from the very beginning. In this clip, Chad references coming back into the U.S. from overseas to visit his son. At this time... Chad had taken his life and career overseas to date and later marry his second wife, who he met through a friend's wedding. The two of them lived in Russia and Cyprus for many years as the controversy surrounding Alex's custody unfolded. The frustration that Chad describes is unimaginable. Going through the effort and giving notice to his ex-wife for visitation, traveling across the world for the purpose of visiting his son, and arriving just to be thwarted with no recourse other than a lengthy court hearing. It got worse, however, when Chad actually got time to spend with his son and hear about how he had been living. Mm, 2002 or 2003, mm-hmm. we had come back for more court hearings, and we actually stayed in the U.S. for quite a while. And he had come with us for, I think it was a weekend or something, and we, we had rented a place to stay. And he was just, like, crying, crying, crying. And I finally got out of what was going on. And he's like, Black Dog is dead! Because she had all these dogs and cats and everything, but he had one dog that was his favorite, and he called yeah. it Black Dog. I, I don't think they ever gave it a name. He called it Black Dog. I love this dog, and I knew about this dog, and it was a great dog. I mean, I, I like dogs, and I knew because the dog was there before I left, and he always talked about Black Dog. And it was, we had a 10-acre horse farm, and so he was running all over the horse farm with Black Dog, okay? And um, she had, like, she had, at that time, she had more horses because they had had babies, and wow. I forget how many she had, but I, I think she had like six horses. Let me yeah. tell you, feeding horses is expensive, especially in the winter when you're not growing your own hay and stuff. It's expensive. And I had fixed up the barns. I had, you know, the barns we moved in needed some repairs. I'd paid for the barns to be fixed up. But she had um, started to work at the Humane Society. She started volunteering there. And then when she had to get a job, she got a job at the Humane Society. So my son, even from a young age, was very aware of what happened to dogs that went to the Humane Society that did not get adopted. Right. Because she often took him to work as well, and he would play with the dogs. And he was from a young age; he knew what happened. And I was sending her at this point almost three thousand dollars a month. Now, mind you, this is the year two thousand, okay. and uh, I gave her the house, gave her the car, and the house payment at the time was six hundred U.S. Okay, and it was fairly paid down as well. So she had a six hundred dollar a month payment. She had a functioning car, which was reasonably new. Um, no major expenses, and she's getting $5,000 a month, and somehow she can't live on it, okay? Well, 3000 in those days, but let's say 5000 for today. It's because the horses and stuff. I mean, they're expensive, and she she wasn't the best with money, okay? Um, but basically, she just couldn't find a way to live on it. And so she actually took Black Dog to the Humane Society and had the Humane Society take the dog. And you know what she told my son? Dad doesn't send enough money for dogs. We have to give Black Dog to the Humane Society. And then she made sure the dog didn't get adopted and put it down. With my son there. This episode was unsettling to Chad, and it informed his perspective that at this point, his son was no longer doing well living with his mother. 
although Chad initially thought it was fine to have Alex live primarily with Nancy. He now felt that it was his duty as a father to take Alex and try and give him a more stable life. Unfortunately, the custody conflict would only intensify from here, and next, a surprising turn of events would land them both in court. 2001, 2002, I didn't really see him much until the divorce was processed and we had the final custody uh, visitation agreement, that kind of stuff. And we had agreed to, um, you know, leave him in Tennessee because there was no way I was going to be able to take a five-year-old, five or six-year-old overseas and deal with foreign schools and that kind of stuff at the time. And we were moving around a lot. Mm -hmm. So uh, the final divorce decree was, okay, she gets a house, she gets one of the cars and she gets a bunch of stuff and... I visitation when I come in the country. So from 2002 until 2004, I would, I had con because I had conferences in the U S they were still. And so what happened a lot of times is out of a conference in the U S they were paying for my flight anyways from Russia. So I didn't care. So what I would do is I would go speak at the conference and then I would fly to Tennessee or I'd fly to Tennessee beforehand for a week or so. So I was in and out of the country quite a bit and she continued to interfere. And it was a real pain in the butt because I would show up and sometimes, sometimes they'd be there and sometimes I'd get them and I would take them for the weekend or even a week or something like that. But it was, it was just constant battles. And so in 2004, I don't remember the exact date, I can look it up, but it would have been probably early summer, 2004. I called and this was the time I was really having trouble because I would call and they would never answer. She would always leave it to the answer machine, but she was outside a lot with the horses. So I remember one time in mid to early 2004 i called and i just kept calling kept calling kept calling because i kept getting the answer machine and one time i was like hey it's dad and he picked up he's like hey how you doing and it's wow. 2004 so he was at that time almost eight and uh, he picked up the phone he's like yeah he's like guess what we're moving i'm like that's kind of news to me i yeah. mean i had had a letter from her like a month or two before and in the letter it basically said you know i'm thinking about um, moving back near my parents because I don't really have anything here in Tennessee. And I was like, okay, in principle, I'm good with that. And she said, I'm, I'm looking at places in Ohio, Pennsylvania, or New York because she, she, she wanted the Raymond rule. She didn't want to be too close to her parents, but not too far. Far enough, they're not over all the time, but close enough she can visit them and be back home the same day type of arrangement. And so, you know, Pennsylvania, Ohio, New York, but that's kind of a big area. And I had agreed in principle. I didn't say, go ahead and move. I just said, well, that sounds like an idea. And if, if, if that's something you want to go through with, keep me informed. And, you know, in general, I'm okay with it. And then so in a month or two later, I get him on the phone. He's like, yeah, we're moving. I'm like, well, that's a red flag right there because I, she didn't tell me where. She didn't tell me. And, and I said, so where are you moving to? And he says, we're going to Cherry. And then all of a sudden, she opens the door. And she's like, get off the phone and, hang, and slams the phone. No way. Yeah, so all I know is they're moving to Cherry. Where's Cherry? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> oh. But I figure it's probably Pennsylvania, Ohio, or New York. And I figure it's probably western New York, uh, northwestern Pennsylvania, or eastern Ohio. But that's still a pretty big area that's larger than a lot of countries. So I tried calling back, and surprise, surprise, they didn't answer the phone. So I kept calling, never got any answers. This is the first event that Chad described to me that matched up to the legal documents that Chad had provided to me. As soon as he got whiff that this entire custody situation was starting to go sideways, he started diligently keeping all documents and correspondence with regard to the case. 
He also kept this mentality as he eventually went on to Bulgarian prison, where his extremely detailed notes have made their way onto his website and onto TikTok in video form. The Bulgaria story is somewhat far off in the narration from where we are now, but I promise it's something worth looking forward to. So I filed with the court because, you know, I wanted to know where they were going. And so what the court did was the, the court were who, who had just processed the divorce two years earlier, the court issued her an injunction and it did not stop her from moving. All the injunction said was, listen, by Tennessee law, you need to give a court 30 days notice before leaving the state and you need to basically set up that the court orders are transferred to the new state and that kind of stuff. So they issued her an injunction and said, you cannot leave the state before without appearing before the court first and basically, you know, arranging things. And they set a court date for her to appear and um, she didn't show up. And in fact, she packed up the uh, house and moved. It's here that the situation starts to turn from contentious and unusual to straight up absurd. Put yourself in Chad's shoes. You leave a bland marriage and you try to do so amicably. You do your best to make sure your child is cared for and move on to greener pastures. Start dating another woman and see your career blossom. As you remain engaged in your son's life for a few months out of the year, you realize your son's life is worse than you could have imagined and you start to think of a plan to take over the raising of your child. Shortly after you begin to have these thoughts, you learn that your ex-wife is trying to move away without notifying you, and you have to begin an all-out investigation on the opposite side of the planet to determine where your son is. It's important to note that there are two sides to every story, and as I and others continue to try and get into contact with Nancy Oberlander, her side of the story remains unknown. Other than what she said in court or wrote in letters to Chad and his family members. From this point, Chad initiates his investigation. First, he receives a mysterious letter in the mail from his ex-wife. So I get a letter postmarked Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, that basically just says, oh, we're moving to Pennsylvania. And uh, I'm not telling you where, but you can communicate with me through my mom's address. I'm going to read the letter. It's dated September 30th, 2004. Mr. Howard, you have had my mother's phone number and mailing address for quite some time and I had let you know on more than one occasion to contact me through there if need be. For you to do what you have done to Eris is a level at such a depth that I had not previously thought even you could sink to. I demand that you immediately cease and desist such inexcusably heinous acts against his emotional and mental welfare. Leave him alone. Contact me through my mother's address or number if you are able to schedule visitation for a future time and date. Nancy Oberlander. The thing Nancy is upset about in this letter is Chad's appearance at Alex's school, which you'll hear Chad's version of in a few minutes. This letter would become the subject of a court hearing months later, and the judge would issue strict admonitions to Nancy for the assertion that Chad could only communicate with his child through Nancy's mother's address. Notwithstanding any of that, Nancy proceeded with the move. Tennessee, or would she not have a warrant for missing a date? Well, she left before the court hearing. Yeah, but would she still not be in contempt of court? Because they have to still resolve yeah, the fact she that... Was they... a, yeah, she was in contempt, but only after the court hearing passed. Oh, right. And she was already in she Pennsylvania by that yeah. point. Uh -huh. And so she was like, well, I'm in Pennsylvania. What's Tennessee going to do to me? She had no idea where she was at all. I mean, mm -hmm. okay, we knew somewhere in Pennsylvania what we thought. 
and she'd sent a letter from Pittsburgh, so we kind of assumed that area. And so basically what I had to do was Tennessee ordered her to appear. She said, nope, not going to do it, not going to do it. So I had to basically um, take time off work, fly back to the United States again, and uh, try and find her. And so what I had done is uh, before I got on, a, I had booked a ticket, but of course you can't book a ticket for the next day from Russia, super expensive. So we booked a ticket and I don't remember if it was a week or a month or weeks or a month or so, but we knew we had to go back to the States to try and find them. Uh, but before then I started making a lot of phone calls. So I pulled up Google and there really wasn't Google maps back then, but you know, there were some maps online. So I started scouring all the maps of Ohio and Pennsylvania and New York looking for any town called Cherry. Now there is a tiny little, it's not even, a, it's not even an incorporated town, but it's a place name in, in Erie County called Cherry Hill. And so I started calling there and I call it Ohio. There's a lot of play. You'd be surprised the number of town names with Cherry in the name. <laughs> yeah. So I figured he's got to be in school, right? Yeah. So I started calling all the schools in these towns and just say, Hey, you know, I'm looking for my son, my ex-wife picked up and moved and I believe he may be in your school district and I know you can't tell me but uh, I'll, I'll fax you over copies of of the divorce and the custody and my identities and can you just tell me yes or no is my son enrolled in your school district and I was doing this and I, I don't know the number of schools I did this to and the thing is if they would just tell you on the phone it's easy but they won't so you got a fax and the email was not a thing back then okay I mean it was for me but not for the school districts okay so I'm having to fax all these documents and I don't remember, it was a lot of schools, okay? It was, it was easily into the dozens. And I just couldn't find them. So I found a township. Again, these are not towns. Um, these are just subdivisions of counties within Pennsylvania. And I found one called Cherry Tree Township. And I thought, you know what? And it wasn't too far away from our parents. Wasn't It, it was a couple counties. It was like three counties away from where my ex-wife and I grew up and I thought that seems like a place she might go. And so uh, I called the school district and they're like, yes, your son's been enrolled here. I'm like, bingo. So now we had a location, but I still only had a school district, which is still a decent size, but I knew he was enrolled in cherry tree elementary school, which is in Venango County, Pennsylvania, uh, near Titusville. And so we kind of had a location. So I figured, okay, that's good enough for now. Fly back to the U.S., but now we got to actually find them because we can't even serve them with anything until we know where they are. So we get there, and I show up to the school, and I'm like, well, here's the situation, and I just want to see my son. Can I just, you know, I can come back. I can visit him at lunch. And they're like, no. And I'm like, uh, why? Because your ex-wife told us you kidnapped him. So she had told the school some big sob story about how I was, I don't know, verbally abusive and that Alex did not want to see me. And she had actually programmed him. He was scared of me now. He was scared because she told the school that I would show up and attempt to kidnap him. So the school would not let me see him. So I had to go to get a court order to let me see my son. And we still didn't know where they lived. Had no idea, but through the court order, I was able to get a copy of his school record. And in his school record was their address.
Now yeah. I had their address, and now I could serve her with court orders. And in fact, when I did get the school visitation, she uh, only agreed to allow me to visit him at school after I go to court order if the police were also present at the time. And then when I did see him, he was scared of me. And the school was like, see, this is what we were talking about. This is why we don't, I'm like, well, listen, that's not my doing. I want to note once again that myself and others are still trying to get in touch with Nancy Oberlander as some pretty serious allegations are launched by Chad in this clip. Over all the years that reporting has been done on this story by various outlets, none of them have ever been able to get a statement out of Nancy Oberlander. The only statements that we can discern from her are those that she has filed through her lawyers or on her own in court. To get something of an unbiased perspective, this story is the first that is corroborated by court documents. On September 3rd, 2004, Chad filed a motion in Knox County Chancery Court in Tennessee, the court that had presided over his divorce, stating that he had believed that Nancy was going to flee the state of Tennessee. He specifically claims that she is not complying with Tennessee Code Title 36, Chapter 6, Part 108 a law that governs parental relocation in custody proceedings. This law states that parents that are sharing custody of a child when they want to move need to correspond with one another 60 days prior to the move, essentially saying why they want to move and where they want to move. And the non-moving parent has the opportunity to challenge this. And they essentially have a miniature trial or legal framework that the court will apply if the non-moving parent wants to challenge the move. In this case, Nancy moved without going through any of these steps, and the analysis of whether the move was rightful never took place. A few days prior to Nancy's alleged departure from Tennessee, Chad asked Judge Daryl Fansler of Knox County Chancery Court to issue an injunction requesting Nancy not move out of Tennessee without checking in with the court. This injunction was granted and served to Nancy on September 9, 2004. Records state that on the 17th of September, Alex was enrolled in second grade in Titusville, Pennsylvania. To me, it is a matter of record, not opinion. The court issued the injunction, and eight days later, the injunction not to move was most certainly not followed, as confirmed by the Titusville Area School District. After the injunction was disobeyed, Chad and his lawyers saw it as more important than ever to get custody of Alex, and they asked the Tennessee court on September 29th to have Nancy declared to be in contempt of court for going ahead with her move without showing up to court. They also asked for Alex to be handed over to Chad in the meantime until Nancy could get back in good standing with the Tennessee court. This argument was accepted, and Tennessee ordered Alex to be with his father, along with placing Nancy in contempt of court. This Tennessee order had validity because it was issued by the proper court, but with the mother and child being outside of Tennessee, the order was not enforceable, at least not at that time. Nancy's next move kicks off the massive legal convolution that starts an interstate conflict and makes the story much more difficult to follow. On the 22nd of December, 2004, the two parents and their attorneys go in front of Judge H. William White in the Court of Common Pleas in Venango County, Pennsylvania. Judge White is a big player as this story goes on, and this is his first interaction with Chad and Nancy's case. Between September and December, Chad and his wife had moved from Russia to Tennessee to sort out this legal battle, and it's during this time 
that Chad could visit his son only at the elementary school with police supervision. At the hearing, Judge White ordered Alex to be given to his father until Tennessee sorts out the matter. Here's Chad's recollection of this hearing. And so I had to go to the Pennsylvania courts, and it was kind of a big mess. And so what happened is it took about three months, because I remember it was just before Christmas. And what happened was the, the Tennessee court said, yeah, you took off, lady. You saw in contempt of our court. You got to show up. She's like, nope, not going to do it. So the Pennsylvania court, finally, after a lot of court hearings and a lot of talking to this judge in Pennsylvania, this is Judge White. Judge White told her, he says, listen, you effectively kidnapped this child. You did not leave Tennessee with clean hands. You are in contempt of the Tennessee court. So I'm going to transfer custody back to the father. So in December 2004, they gave me custody of him. And we moved, we went back to Tennessee. Summing up this latest happening, Nancy Oberlander was enjoined from moving from Tennessee to Pennsylvania did so in spite of the order, and was placed in contempt of court for doing so. Since Tennessee could not force her to give up the child when she had physically left Tennessee, both parents hired lawyers in Pennsylvania, and Judge White of Pennsylvania chose not to get involved with the facts of the case following the Tennessee order and sending the case back to Tennessee for a more permanent custody resolution. We actually went to Virginia with my parents and had some Christmas in Virginia. Mm -hmm. I think we went to Disney World for a few days, but basically before school started, after the Christmas break, during this Christmas break, Nancy sent a letter to Chad's mother, which can only be characterized as aggressive. She asks Chad's mother to side with her rather than her son, and gives many explanations for her behavior. In her version of events, the move to Pennsylvania was agreed to by Chad, and her not following court orders to properly move was justified by the fact that she had already sold her house. She also put forward theories that she and Alex were being stalked by someone, and that Chad's showing up at the school had been traumatizing to Alex. The letter also accuses Chad of using the courts as a weapon against Nancy and Alex, when the court clearly sees Nancy's lack of cooperation in court as a weapon being used against Chad. Time went on, and they prepared to head back to Tennessee for more court hearings. We moved to Tennessee. My wife here, uh, we moved to Tennessee, we rented a place, for three months, and the judge in Tennessee set a court hearing for March 2005. At this point, you had given up on Russia and Cyprus in order to take custody of Alex in America? Temporarily, yes. Oh, temporarily. Temporarily, and my wife was pregnant at the time with our second child, so uh -huh. it was really difficult. Wow. It wasn't intended to be pro Well, we didn't know what was going on. We really didn't know, okay? But we figured, okay. And the judge said, okay, you have custody now. And you'll retain custody until the, the court hearing in Tennessee, and it's up to the court in Tennessee what to do with all this. Judge Fansler of Tennessee takes the bench in March 2005 and immediately launches into a long tirade about his frustrations with this case, which goes on for over 10 transcribed pages. He has many reasons for his frustration, such as he feels the case should have never been filed in his court based on where Chad and Nancy lived, that Chad would have to correspond by fax across the world with the court, that the parenting plan had been modified, that Nancy had moved without giving communication, that Nancy had refused to give Chad her new address, that Chad should pay more child support, whether Nancy is responsible for getting a job or homeschooling Alex, that Nancy's fears of Chad fleeing with Alex are unfounded, 
that he didn't believe any of Nancy's reasons for being secretive about her location, and that Nancy doesn't foster a relationship between her son and his father. I'm going to read Judge Fansler's exact words as he concludes his statement. I've got two choices here. I've been offered no other explanations as to how to make it work. Either let this child go to Russia with his father and visit with the mother in the summertime, or I let this child go wherever his father is in the summertime and spend the summer with him. That's the only two choices I've got, folks. I'm going to take a break, and you talk for a minute, and I'll come back and give you the decision, if you all can't resolve this yourself with those options I've laid out. Essentially, Judge Fansler was fed up with this case for a variety of reasons, which is more than understandable. He probably imagined this would be a straightforward divorce and custody case, and in a few short years, the case had become anything but straightforward. He comments later in the hearing, I don't think I've ever seen a case run off track as fastly, as rapidly, as this case did. I'm still at a loss to explain it. After taking a break, Judge Fansler returns. Nancy wants Alex during the year and will send him to Russia in the summers, whereas Chad wants Alex during the year and will send him to America during the summers and holidays with the flights paid for by Chad. No agreement could be made between the parties. Judge Fansler goes on to say that Nancy's plans to move, being inconvenienced by the court injunction, was not a valid defense, and makes the final decision on the new parenting plan. He states that although Nancy's behavior has been unacceptable and he finds her guilty of contempt, it would be more extreme to send the child to live overseas for a majority of time. He decided that Alex will now go to be with Chad in the summers and with Nancy in America the other nine months of the year. Judge Fansler wraps up the hearing with this warning for the both of them. Play fair and do what's right, and remember, it's your child. I don't care if you people like each other. I don't care if you hate each other. Other than talking about this child, I don't care if you ever even speak to one another again. But you're always going to be his mother, and you're always going to be his dad, so act like it. He says to Nancy, Act like you're talking to your son's father, not your ex-husband. I don't think you would have thought it right that your son's father not know where he's going to be living. I think you're dealing with your ex-husband, Miss Hower. After this hearing, life went on for all parties. Chad describes... Right? So he transferred custody back to her, but he told her. He was very, and the judge was very clear. He said, young lady, that child better be on the plane in June of this year to go visit the father. Uh-huh. He better be there. And she's like, yeah, 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 whatever, whatever, whatever. Just give me the kid, just give me the kid, I don't care. So um, custody was transferred back to her in the middle of March, and she took it back to Pennsylvania. And then we went back to Russia or Cyprus. I don't remember exactly. Basically, we went back to Europe. Yeah. And um, then all of a sudden, she's like, I don't have to apply to Earth. Pa- I don't have to apply for a passport, and you can't make me. Chad expects to have his son fly to Cyprus for a summer visitation following this new custody agreement. And surprisingly, or maybe unsurprisingly, there seems to be a new set of conflicts. On the next episode of Fugitive State, we explore Alex's first summer visitation to his father, more conflict between the Pennsylvania and Tennessee courts and how Chad would eventually be arrested by Interpol and Alex Howard would be placed on a missing persons list. 
Fugitive State is a podcast recorded, edited, and researched by me, Chris Grondon, an amateur, non-professional journalist. If you want to learn more about the story from Chad's perspective, visit alexisnotmissing.com. In the podcast description, in the app of your choice, you can find contact information for myself, as well as documents that I reference in this episode. All episodes are available at anchor.fm slash fugitive state, as well as on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. Episode 2 of Fugitive State will be released in January of 2023.